You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Again, welcome to Faith Presbyterian Church. My name is John. Thank you for being here this morning. This morning we want to look at John's Gospel. As John tells the story of our Savior's resurrection, I'd like for you to open your Bibles then to John chapter 20. And little theologians, I'd like for you simply to just draw a picture of the open tomb. Our Savior leaves that tomb. Our God raises him from the dead. And so draw a picture of that, uh, of that tomb for me. As we look at this passage... I want us to see that what we're, what we're witnessing here is we're witnessing uh, two human emotions that come uh, into conflict with the work of our Father in raising His Son from the dead. Uh, the first is doubt, and the second is fear. So I'd like for us to look at John chapter 20. We'll begin by looking at verses 1 through 10, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 19, read a couple verses there. Let's pray together first, and then we'll read God's Word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for speaking to us, and we pray that your Spirit would Uh, control me, would use me, not for my glory or the glory of man, but for the glory of your Son. You loved him and you continue to love him. You never get tired of hearing the story of your son's deliverance from your wrath. This is a part of your plan. So, Father, would you be with me as I tell this story that our Savior's glory would stand front and center. In His name, amen. Again, John chapter 20, 1 through 10, and then skipping to verse 19. Listen to God's Word. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. In verse 19, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin the sermon by having you think about something that you already know, but then wonder why it's there. And something that we, all, that we know already is that children from a very young age always have this hope for something in the future. Children have expectations about the future. A child who's six years old will wonder about things down the line of their lives, like what they'll do for the rest of their lives. They want to be a cowboy or a fireman or whatever. But why? Why do you want to be anything other than today? But even a child, even a child will look 10, 20 years down the road and have expectations for what that life ought to look like. And if you doubt me, sit with a child and offer this this philosophical question. Do you think there should be goodness in the world of the future or badness? They have answers to these questions. They, they, they have these expectations about what things ought to look like in the future. And this is not a little Christian kid thing. Try and raise an irreligious child. Try and raise a child who is religiously neutral. That same child is going to have hopes and expectations for what ought to lie out in the future. Isn't that striking? Why, why do they do that? Why don't they just live for the present? But they don't. That they hope that their mom and dad will always remain married and always be there for them. Uh, they hope that there will be joy and happiness in the days ahead. Uh, they hope that they will get to be a cowboy or a fireman. They have hopes and expectations. And you know, the Bible tells us why this is. The Bible tells us that human beings are not simply biological products. Human beings are created. They're fashioned. They're made. And, and any time we look at anything that has been made, we expect there to be some kind of a signature of the maker of that item. We expect that. Don't you expect that here? I am fashioned by someone. I am made by someone. And so too are you. This is what the Bible teaches us. And that, that someone's signature is there. That someone has created, and so those whom He has made desire to create. Those whom He has made desire to go out into the world and know the world and and expand in the world, to train the world as it is. This is the signature of a Creator. And what that means is every created individual has some kind of plan or a mission. There are desires that are seeking to be fulfilled. That's the stamp of a maker. This is what the Bible tells us about ourselves. And the Bible also says that there is a fallenness or a brokenness in the world. And the first thing that means is that this desire, this mission, is not a a mission without imperfections. The things that we hope for don't always come to pass. We know that there is some kind of brokenness in the world, obstacles before us. And yet, 
that imprint is still on us. I hope for more. I anticipate more. I want to do, I want to create, I want to expand, I want to dominate, I want to go. I want a narrative, a story, perhaps even a liturgy to be told by my life. This is not all there is. There's more. There's more. It's almost like that's what our inner heart just chants. There's more, there's more, there's more. We were made to pursue a narrative, to pursue a story. And even though we're fallen, Genesis 3 tells us that, even though we're fallen, there's still that motivation, that desire. Let me be very clear with you. Here's the problem. Here's why all of our desires are not met. As we live out our mission, we are aware that we are not in the driver's seat. There are things that control us. There are things that we don't want to control us. Let me just give you a few real simple examples. You desire for your career to go this direction. But there are people that can fire you. There are sins and faults that can be discovered and derail that career. There are things that can happen to that career that are beyond your control. And your career is changed or squashed. Your plans fall flat. Which of us can guarantee that we will never become ill? Which of us knows that we will live out long days on earth without fear of any tragic disease or tragedy itself. None of us know that. That's a difficult reality. We desire to live a mission. We desire to plan and to see those plans come to fruition. We have hopes, longings, yearnings, desires, and yet we're not in the driver's seat. There are things that are beyond our control. You have to admit this. If there's anyone in this room that has any regret about what's happened in the past, you know what I mean. You can't go back in time and fix that problem. You have to live with it. That was not part of your plan, but there you have it. You have regrets. And someone else controls time because you can't spin the dial backwards and sort that problem out. And that reality, I want you to just entertain that reality for just about 20 minutes. Entertain it just for 20 minutes, even if you, if, if you doubt that. Even if you want to tell me all of the avenues of power that you have in your life, through whatever it might be, relationships or status or money or career, that, that just hold that for a moment. You may have great power to bring about your own personal mission. But suspend that just for a moment. Because I believe that you don't have as much power as you think. You don't have as much power as you think. And over the next 20 minutes, I want to tell you that the only true access that you have to the peace that you seek and to the gladness that you seek is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only access that you have to any peace that you might be longing for or any gladness that you're longing for, the the only access you have is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's, that's what I want us to think about. And I want you to think along two lines. The first one is this. We've read a story of a resurrection. 
And this resurrection meets the people in the story in the middle of doubt and in the middle of fear. This story of the resurrection, just as as we've read, this resurrection meets people right in the middle of doubt and right in the middle of fear. And let me first start with doubt. There was doubt among the two women And even among Peter and then the beloved disciple is uh, John, the the writer of the gospel. And there's doubt. They peek their heads into the tomb. They they lower their heads and they, they look in the tomb and they wonder what they see. It just doesn't make sense. They can't put the pieces together. But keep in mind that they doubted before they ducked their heads. Let me tell you what I mean by that. They doubt it actually before they duck their heads. Because look what John tells us. He says that they, that they struggle to believe what was taught them in the Scriptures. The Scriptures taught clearly that the Messiah must die and be resurrected. That He must die like the unblemished Lamb and rise again. The doubt began before they ducked their heads. It's not that the event itself was so magnificent. You know, it is interesting that many, uh, many non-believers will look at Christians and say, these Christians are chasing after a pre-modern belief. They're chasing after this belief that no one could believe in unless they predated science. But we're all enlightened people, and enlightened people don't believe in that craziness of the resurrection. That's what an unsaved person might say to a Christian. Enlightened people don't believe in the resurrection. Only pre-modern people believe in the resurrection. But if you look at John chapter 20, what you find is you find these people acting very much like enlightened individuals. They're struggling to believe what's just happened here. There is no body in this tomb. And that stone has been rolled away. And something really fishy has happened here. You know, when I uh, first became a Christian uh, and began to share the gospel with individuals, these were always the kinds of proofs that I offered for the resurrection of Jesus. If someone were to steal the body, surely they would, they would have taken that linen that is sitting there. That linen was placed there by Joseph of Arimathea. It, uh, you know, of all the things that would be in that tomb, that would be one of the things worth the most amount of money. That linen was placed there by Joseph of Arimathea. It is a rich man's tomb. If someone stole the body, why leave the linen? Or if someone stole the body, why why fold the face cloth? Again, it's it's evidence that there's there's something different than just someone broke in and stole this body. Uh, How did they they make it around the guards? It It would be a large group of people that would have to make it through those guards. Not even 11 disciples are enough to make it through armed guards to push back that stone. And then later in the passage when Jesus submits to them the wounds on his hand and the wounds in his side, again, there is evidence so that these supposedly pre-modern people might become believers. And these, uh, these proofs are, are very good proofs. And again, when I was a new Christian, these were, these were things that I would go to, to to convince people of the reality of the resurrection. But there's, there's, it seems to me that there's another way to talk about the reality of the resurrection. And that is simply this, that the people there, they doubted as well. 
They doubted as well, but they doubted even before they looked into the tomb. They doubted the, the story of Scripture. They, they read all of Scripture, and, and they just weren't sure that this is what exactly that meant. And so when I share the gospel with people, I'll, I'll, I'm not beyond using these proofs of the resurrection. But I can also look in their eyes and I can say, there were doubters just like you who went to that tomb and saw it empty. They were just like you. And they saw that empty tomb and it didn't make sense to them. But what they should have done is they should have gone into Scripture and they should have seen there the story of God's plan. And it is true that there, there are substantial proofs for the resurrection of our Lord and Savior in these words. But when I'm talking to someone, they want this to be true. They want this to be true. There's something that is so terribly broken and wrong in the world that there needs to be a great disruption from outside to fix that problem. Every person that I talk to who is not a believer will admit that, yes, they have a desire for goodness and wholesomeness in this world, but there's something broken, that are, there's something that is not right with this world. And if, if we can talk at length, I can convince them, not always, I can convince them sometimes that there's brokenness within them. There's brokenness within them. Even the things that you want, you can't bring about. There are regrets, there are hurts, there are loathsome things about your life that you don't want anyone to know, and the standards that you hold others up to, in all honesty, you can't quite keep them yourself. In your quiet, dark moments, you know all of this. Something is very wrong. And that wrongness, that brokenness is described in Scripture. No religion in the world deals with this kind of brokenness. But Scripture does. Scripture says that that brokenness is the result of sin. That in that sin of Adam and Eve, the entire world has gone a few degrees off. And everything is out of balance. Everything is off. And the only way this is going to be fixed will truly taste justice, will truly taste peace, will truly have gladness. The only way this is fixed is if someone comes and fixes the root of the problem. And that's Jesus. And this is God's divine counsel. This is His plan. It's not to fix just the, the sundry variables of incorrectness around us. God attacks the heart of the problem. And it's that the world is filled with people who have no means of reconciliation with the creator of that world unless blood is spilled, unless a price is paid. This world needs redemption. And when the world has that redemption, then the broken things are made right. Then the broken things are made right. And so God sends Jesus, and Jesus becomes a victor. Here's what's remarkable about that tomb. The work of that tomb is God's work. Go back a few days and think about the raising of Lazarus. How was Lazarus raised from the dead? How was he raised from the dead? 
The, the, the tissue is not receiving blood. The heart is not pumping. Uh, the, the brain is not doing what it's supposed to. He is dead. How does he receive life? And Jesus speaks life to him. Jesus speaks life to him. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. But Jesus is dead. He's dead. Who spoke life to this one? Who gave life to this individual that this individual might get up and walk out of the tomb? Because when we've seen it done in the past, it was that individual's lips themselves that said, rise. So what the disciples wondered at is how far God would go. It's one thing to read the Bible and to love its beauty and majesty, but it's another thing to read the Bible and see that it is a story of God's plan for redemption. How far would He go? Far enough to crush His Son, stamping the life out of Him. That's how far. And there's no one left to give Him life except the same God who stamped the life out of Him. This Jesus entirely satisfied the will of God. Completed God's plan for the redemption of the world, the correction of all that is broken, seized upon a victory that was given to Him by the Heavenly Father. This Jesus rose from the dead. And He did this in a setting of doubt. If you're here this morning and you doubt this resurrection... The advice the passage gives to you is to critique God's plan as it's revealed in His Word. Critique God's plan as it's revealed in His Word. But I just want to give you just a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of a kick, and say to you that you must admit that things are broken. You must admit that things are broken. Consider that Word. Consider God's story for the necessary redemption of mankind in the blood of His Son. Consider his story. Jesus' resurrection comes to us in the middle of doubt, and I don't want you to think that your doubt is any more special or any more hallowed or any more enlightened or any more postmodern than the doubt of those who were there. They doubted as well. But the resurrection comes to us in doubt. But the resurrection also comes to us in the middle of our fear. The disciples are clearly terrified. And they're terrified for reasons that you may not like to hear. Uh, Jesus has been killed. And once Jesus is killed, they're just going to go after his followers. And the fear that they have is a fear of self-preservation. It's a fear of self-preservation. You know, we like to think of the disciples as uh, beyond this kind of thing. They at some point are going to give their bodies for the glory of Jesus. But you have to see this scene right here, that they are terrified. And, and I think that what we all need to admit is that there is far more fear in our lives than we give credit for. There is far more fear. There, there is fear in our lives that we just are not going to share. You know, it's not fearful to base jump. And it's not fearful to be in a room filled with spiders, right? I mean, I know, yes, it is fearful. 
But there are fears that you are not ready to admit. Are you ready to admit the fear of vulnerability in relationships? Someone knowing how wretched you are. Someone knowing how sinful you are. I have no interest in base jumping, but that fear, that fear of being vulnerable in relationships, that, that's got to make the list. It just has to. What about the fear of confessing faults? Taking the initiative and deliberately, deliberately going to someone and confessing your faults to them. That's remarkably fearful. What about the fearfulness of just admitting that you have no control? You have no control. You, you want to do one thing, but something else is unfolding around you. There's a lot more fear in our lives than we're willing to admit. And I'm a pastor. I, I can't dive into those deep, dark moments that you experience, but I know that they're there. I know that they're there. Things have not turned out as you had hoped in life. And you have done some things that you just don't want anyone to know about. Peace, then. What does that look like in a situation like this? If life is all my own mission, and yet in this mission I realize that there's some brokenness, and there's some doubt and worry, and there's some fear, what kind of peace are you going to call peace? In, in all honesty, with, with great respect, I don't want to hear what makes your mission peaceful. Because it's thin and fleeting. I don't want to hear what's going to make your mission glad. Because your mission is already broken. You're, the plans that you make, they don't come about. You taste an awful lot of brokenness. And you're just trying to make your way. But you can't guarantee that your friends will continue to be your friends. You can't guarantee that your body isn't going to be eaten through with cancer. You can't guarantee that the market won't collapse and you lose all of your money. So to be perfectly frank, your peace is not the peace I'm interested in. Because your plan is not that great. I mean that with utter respect, and you should say the same thing to me. Your mission is a mission that has a larger one above it, and that's the mission I'm interested in. When Jesus himself, the resurrected one, walks into the room and he says, peace be with you, don't you suspect that that's a different kind of peace than a peace that would be offered by your employer or by your spouse or by a friend? Don't you suspect that that is a different kind of peace? And in his mission, that's true peace. Peace is talked about a lot in this passage. But in this mission, God's mission, his mission to redeem his children to himself by crushing his own son, being satisfied in that son's perfect life, and raising that son from the dead, that is God's mission. And that's the peace that we should yearn for. And that's the peace that comes to us even amidst our fear in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. That is peace. Jesus stood before Adam's guilt holding all of that guilt and sinfulness on his shoulders, and he died for it. And he crushed the impact of that judgment by allowing his body to be crushed under the perfect righteousness of God. And God was satisfied in that payment and rose him up from the dead. And that man, that victor, walks in front of you and he says, Peace be with you.
It's a different piece. It's attached to a different mission. And your mission, as good as it is, it's just, it's just approximate. We pray for one another and we pray that our lives would, wouldn't be corrupted by disease and sickness and grief and tragedy. We pray for one another. But at the end of the day, God's mission is the victorious one. And if you suffer, if you hurt, if you taste tragedy, as a Christian, you'll still be okay. Because God's mission doesn't vacillate. Jesus is our victor. It's a resurrection that meets us in our doubt. It's a resurrection that meets us in our deep fear. And let me finish with this. Before the disciples, Jesus offers them this peace, a peace that he worked for with his body, a peace that he received from God as God raised him from the dead. And I stop just before the passage that talks about the the Holy Spirit. But you see Father, Son, and Spirit working together. And I stop for this reason. I want you this morning to hear that this is your only access to gladness. This this is gladness. That that resurrected Jesus is my peace. That's your gladness. I'm sorry you haven't gotten a job. I'm sorry you're running out of money. I'm sorry for the illness and the sickness. I'm sorry for your imperfect pastor. The list could go on and on. But the gladness is from an entirely different piece. And because it's from an entirely different piece, it is real gladness. I want you to listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis about his own conversion. And I want to say one more thing and then we'll just finish. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about his conversion. He says, You must picture me alone in that room at Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second, my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. He feels the approach of him whom he so desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the more dejected and reluctant convert in all England, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? Compel them to come in. These words have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. This morning, I want you to understand that the gladness that Jesus offers with his own body, the gladness that he fought for and won, being raised from the dead by God himself, that gladness he brings to you. It's yours. Any other gladness that you find is not just a pale comparison. It's not just synthetic or artificial. It's absolutely and utterly useless. This is the gladness for you. His resurrection enters your doubt. His resurrection enters your fear. And God's plan is made known so that you would taste not a feeble gladness, but a gladness that comes from the peace of Christ Jesus. Welcome to Resurrection Sunday.
Let's pray together. Our Jesus, you have come for us. We plan, we connive, we make do. But you've entered our doubt and you've entered our fear. You've made yourself known as our victor. And through you and you only do we have peace and gladness. And when we have that peace and that gladness, we will never lose it. Jesus, thank you for your victory. Thank you for your resurrection. To your glory. Amen.